person that I was going to replace was unfortunately killed on Christmas Day. Basically, rolling into a place and a hostile environment where I was basically the sprog and I'm trying to replace someone and fill someone else's boots. And that, I remember that being like quite a, a big ask. I, I wanted to be the best possible to ensure that I earned my place because I was aware that this person was no longer there. And I think like that, and I'll, I'll be really honest with you, and I've probably really not admitted this to, to lots and lots of people, if anyone at all, I really overcompensated. It was tough to try and fit in. And whilst the professionalism was absolutely of the highest degree, I think like psychologically, I was like, I'm not good enough to be here. I'm Nick Haley, founder of Little Big Tech. After more than a decade in the army, I left and joined civilian life. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking to entrepreneurs who left military service and started the next exciting chapter in their lives. We'll hear how these inspiring individuals transitioned from active service to the world of business. How did they take the first step on the road to becoming an entrepreneur? We'll find out. Welcome to Little Big Vets, the veteran entrepreneurs podcast. career cut short from injury is always a difficult thing to accept. A footballer who retires due to a serious ACL tear, a pilot who sustains an eye injury, must pivot to a management job, or a military officer who finds themselves off active service due to a cruel twist of fate. It's always tough. It was especially tough for Anthony Thompson. In the midst of a distinguished career in the Royal Marines, during a training exercise in the Brecon Beacons, he jumped with a weight and ruptured multiple ligaments in his legs. How did it feel to get that injury and realise it could finish your career? Yeah, I don't think I realised at the time that was the career ender. It was a testament to his mental strength that Anthony overcame that setback. His desire to succeed and keep his freedom led him to start his own business. Today, we'll find out how he did it, how Lupin, his AI-driven business designed to boost worker performance, has succeeded in the next stage of his life. Anthony, great to have you here today. Let's go back to the start and um, talk about young Anthony joining the Marines. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was pretty interesting, really. I think, you know, age 19, falling massively short of all of the things that I wanted to do with my life, falling into the wrong environment with those that I spent most of my time with. Not particularly bad people, but not on my trajectory, or at least my believed or perceived trajectory at the time when I left school. And so fundamentally, you know, going into that Armed Forces Careers Office was the game changer that I needed. And when I first went in, it was actually with my best friend, Mike. He wanted to join the military as well. We kind of both got into the mindset of uh, we needed to get out because I grew up in Norwich. And uh, at the time, it was referred to as the graveyard of ambition. I'm sure many wouldn't agree. And, and I probably wouldn't agree with that now. But certainly where I was at, all of the things that I'd wanted to do, I was just missing the mark of. And so when he said, I think I'm going to join the Navy, I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll join the Navy too. And we both walked into the Armed Forces Careers Office and he went forward to be a bomb disposal diver, you know, best of the Navy out then. That was the perception. And I think I just followed suit really because I thought that's a great ticket out of here and I need to get out. And whilst he went into the Armed Forces Careers Office, I shortly followed and he immediately went to the uh, desk where the officer uh, was like, welcome, Mr. Lovewell. Thank you very much for attending and did his bit. I kind of just waited in that seating area. 
And uh, I caught the attention of the big corporal that was sat behind the desk. And he kind of looked up and we sort of met uh, as sort of a difficult gaze and obviously was immediately intimidated. But he said, uh, you're quite a big lad, aren't you? I said, yeah, you know, cocky 19-year-old. He said, do you reckon you could do 10 pull-ups? I was like, yeah, obviously. You know, wanted to show that I was a dominant alpha male in that moment in time because that's the world which I came from. And I uh, just did the 10 pull-ups and he said, well, how do you feel about joining the Marines? And I said, yeah, I'll join the Marines. Good idea. Took the paperwork home, did the paperwork over the weekend, told everyone in my family I was going to do it. Plenty of people in my family were saying, I don't think you're going to do this. You hate being told what to do. How on earth are you going to join the Marines? Forget it. And I just thought, well, I'll just go and do it anyway. You know, kind of strong-willed. So returned back on the Monday, Tuesday with the paperwork filled out. And that was really the moment where I decided I was going to join the Marines. I mean, we'll probably talk about it later as to why I chose the Marines at that moment. But yeah, that was kind of the starting block for everything that's come uh, since that time. Right. So then went off and did the... I can't remember what the Royal Marines basic training is called, but you've got something different, I call it, they call it, I think. And then you have all the commando tests at the end. You've got the, you know, your typical medicals, you've got your pre-joining fitness test, your PJFT, then you've got PRMC, potential Royal Marines course, you know, three, four days down at Limpston to see if you've got the grit to potentially make it through. And, and I think like, that's the key word, isn't it? You know, they're looking for potential. They're saying, is this somebody who has the ability, given some work, because I definitely needed work, personally and professionally does this person show the signs that they may make it out of here successfully and then you go on to basic training you know typical first sort of soldiering 15 weeks then beyond that point is more advanced soldiering and then a culmination of that is the commando tests right at the end you know or commando phase from week 26 onwards and then the final test or tests are the four days of grueling physical activity when you'd got to that point, were you ever thinking, I can't do this? Jim, interestingly, I never thought that in training. I never thought that I couldn't do it. I always wanted to have a green beret at the end of it. And, and reality is, is it is a piece of cloth at the end of the day. But I think that my experiences and my environment were really a determining factor as to why I wanted to go on and get this green beret. And it's kind of linked back to when I was growing up, my grandfather, I never had a father growing up, so no male role model, don't even know if he's still alive, if he's not. And my grandfather was my role model, you know, my fatherly figure, if you like, and invested quite heavily in me as a child. And his interests became my interests, if you like. And he took me on a trip to Normandy. I don't know if you've ever been on the Normandy trip and you've been to all of the D-Day landings, Juno Beach, Gold Beach, uh, and so on and so forth. Battlefield tour type job. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So we did one of those and we went on a coach and we ended up sitting behind this chap called Jim Tuff. Obviously didn't know his name at the time, but Jim Tuff was, you know, quite engaging on this coach tour. You know, I'm 12, 13 years old, so everything is brilliant. And I'm just like, wow, so many questions, so many questions. I think this first interaction was your grandson asks a lot of questions, doesn't he? And uh, my grandfather was like, yep, he definitely does. And when we arrived at Pegasus Bridge, where the first, uh, you know, Paris landed in the gliders and did potentially an unbelievable, you know, one of the most remarkable feats of soldiering I've ever heard stories of. And then, I don't think it's there anymore, but then there was a tank that was just the other side of the bridge. And Jim turned around and said, well, you know, that's my tank. And obviously, you know, 12, 13 years old, I'm like, amazing. This is incredible. This guy's awesome. Okay. 
tell me more about this tank. And he started showing these photos where he was the tank commander of this particular tank rolling in on D-Day. And I so I was I was in I was bought in. I was like, yeah, this guy is awesome. And I just hung off every word beyond that point. And because obviously at that age, you know, I didn't know it, but fundamentally I was looking for, you know, really strong role models, you know, male male role models, particularly because I hadn't complete absence of those within my childhood. And so, you know, we ended up reaching out after the tour. We went down to Rochester where he lived and the stories that he told and what he stood for and the things that he had done with his life. I was just like, wow. And I kind of remember that just at the time when I was walking into the Armed Forces Careers Office. I remember that being the deciding moment where I thought, ah, oh, Marines, yeah, definitely. I want to be like that. And so in answer to your question, no, I never wanted to give in. I never didn't think that I could do it because I wanted to be the person that was able to wear the Green Beret because I wanted to hold those values. I wanted to be that person. And I think like that super precise, clear vision of who I wanted to become, even in the roughest of times when, you know, I tore my hip flexor, mile 24 on the 30 miler, as many, many other lads do, you know, get multiple injuries, a crack on, but you just become so laser focused on getting to that point. No, I can't say that I ever felt that I had wanted to throw in the towel per se. I distinctly remember when I was going through Perbright, I joined the Irish Guards to start with. I was 17 and I joined the army because I didn't really know what else to do. I knew I wasn't having a good time at school. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't find it difficult. I just didn't like it. And uh, one of my friends had joined the army. And so I was like, well, that sounds like a laugh. So I joined up and uh, yeah, I distinctly remember a few times a little voice in my head during basic training going, what are you doing? It's all these big lumps just shouting at you making you run up like a sand hill with a big heavy bag on. What are you doing? Life could be so much easier. But then uh, there was something that went, well, no, you've, you've started it, so to finish it. But yeah, I definitely remember having doubts in some of the tough times. But yeah, never actually wrapped on it. I really remember that being distinctly different when I went back through basic training to become an officer. So I put myself back to do core commission. And I remember having immediate doubts within the first three weeks where I'd never had doubt before. And uh, that was a new experience for me. So it happens. I just think it happens. It happens to everyone, but I just wonder when it happens. People are at different stages. So uh, yeah, it did happen to me. What was life like after you finished training? You've joined a regular unit. How was that? Yeah, good. You know, I think within the first month I was put on BCR, so battle casualty replacement. This was during the time of Herrick 9. And I was stood to ready to deploy pretty much from that point forward. My call came about two weeks, three weeks after that point of being put on that roster, on that list. Not knowingly at the time, although I was aware of it, the person that I was going to replace was unfortunately killed on Christmas Day. Basically rolling into a place and a hostile environment where I was basically the sprog and I'm trying to replace someone and fill someone else's boots. And that, I remember that being like quite a, a big ask I wanted to be the best possible to ensure that I earned my place because I was aware that this person was no longer there. And I think like that for me, in many ways, kind of set me off on the wrong foot. I tried to be more than than what I actually was, was if that makes sense. I was, it was almost like a, I need to do everything at, at you know, 110%. And I'll, I'll be really honest with you, and I've probably really not admitted this to, to lots and lots of people, if anyone at all. I really overcompensated to the point where it kind of 
kicked me in the wrong places. It was tough to try and fit in. And whilst the professionalism was absolutely of the highest degree in theatre when we were on the ground, I think like psychologically, I was like, I'm not good enough to be here. This person's boots I'm trying to fill is dead. And I remember that really sort of playing on my mind. More so becoming aware of it later, but that really was what I was experiencing as, as I was out there. So it was really interesting time for me whilst I was doing everything that I'd been trained to do. So I was fortunate enough to experience that bizarrely as that may sound but that's obviously what you trained for and I think it was a great first opportunity to do that and an enjoy a not enjoyable one that all sounds like quite a short period of time to finish from training to go out on your first tour what was that time period I finished early to mid December and I was out by mid to end Jan so wow. really really short time yeah. and obviously you had Christmas leave in that time frame as well so I had probably like three four maybe f max five weeks at a unit and it was like okay you're off to Afghan fella pack your bags let's go I was maybe 15 16 months something like mm. that before I went on my first tour and I was still very much a sprog at that point so like you know <laughs> that time frame is crazy that would have been tough it was tough but it was also like immense excitement to go do it I was tremendously excited oh, gotcha. I was like okay yeah that's something a lot of people don't really appreciate that you know when you're a young lad and you've been through all of this training when someone says right get your gear on we're going to go and do it that it's incredibly exciting so then you've done your first tour you come back and then have things gone after that so first tour in the bag you know and then coming back was an interesting period because i was still deemed a sprog you know i hadn't been out of the box six because the, the tour finished in april so I was still a sprog, you know, six months in. I remember that I was getting married that year as well. And I had to do my joining run. Obviously, we don't talk about joining runs, but, you know, initiation, but it wasn't anything too bad. And uh, it was interesting because I think like part of it, I had to request some elements that like my eyebrows staying on my face would be very good. If I could rock up to my <laughs> wedding photos with those on, that would be super. It's a different time back then anyway. So, you know, it was all part of the sort of experience. But no, I distinctly remember that and uh, that being allowed. Yeah, yeah, he's done a tour. He's fine. He's fine. He can keep his eyebrows. All right. Okay. Cheers, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks very much. The weird yeah. things that you thank people for after a major career. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah, you know, one of the things I do remember is really wanting to always just get on with the next thing. I've done that. Right. Now, what do I need to do? What do I need to specialize in? Where do I need to go from this point forward? And I wanted to go SF. I was like, yeah, I need, need to do SF. That's that's where I want to be. But I'd try SFC, so Special Force Communicators. I remember going down to obviously where they train and doing the one week of aptitude. And I remember doing it, finishing it and going, I'm not sure that this is actually what I want for my life right now because they were really honest about it. They were like, you'll do six months, you'll come back for a month you'll be out again for six months and you'll probably be on that rotation for about the next two to three years. And if you don't have the capacity and you don't have the willingness to want to go and do that, don't apply. And I thought, ah, oh, just got married. Starting my new part yeah. of this life. Is this what is the right thing to do? And I just remembered saying, no, that's not what I want to do. So I then found uh, intelligence. But whilst I was waiting for combat in, I then had the opportunity to go on the display team. I'd subsequently done some work with the with the sergeant major or the sausage maker, as uh, everybody refers to him as. And uh, 
I was put in the Clark role whilst I was in this holding pattern to start my intelligence course because there was only one intake per year of eight people. That was kind of your maximum. And I then got the opportunity to go on the display team, the commando display team, which was going around the country doing choreographed fighting and really looking back, you go, what were we actually selling there? Extreme violence and how to beat each other up, join the Royal Marines. It was a bit of a weird one. I mean, there was more to that. Of course there was, but, you know, four to eight people, you know, throwing themselves on a, about on the mat. I learned how to dodge a baseball bat. I learned how to, uh, to dodge a kosh. So, you know, there was some upside from a personal perspective, but no, it was a really, a really, really good experience. And I think that, you know, bonding with those, those guys, we were on the road a lot. It was a really good period of my time in the military was actually doing that and going out there and being able to do those things. And then, yeah, later came intelligence. That was something you'd put yourself forward for was the further selection that you had to do for that? Or was it a case of you said, I want to do this and your boss goes, yeah, he's a good lad, he could do that. You have to do like initial testing, then you do the aptitude of a week. Because it was such a small portion of the Marines, I think in total, maybe 30, maybe 40 people made up the entire combat intelligence specialization. I think it's expanded out a little bit more now. Now everybody's realized that, you know, J2 intelligence is of quality. And, it's and relatively important these days. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of need to know what's going on, right? What makes you wonder what we did before. But anyway, the group was small. The aptitude had passed. We went on eight guys doing this sort of six month intelligence course. That was the thing I was really interested in. I was really interested in understanding what was going on. I was really interested in fundamentally understanding what we were doing and what the enemy was doing. That enthusiasm never really left me. I still enjoyed doing it a little bit today. I suppose it's a bit like uh, enterprise sales. You kind of need to understand who's in the power base, who's the economic buyer, who's the facilitator, who's the financier. You know, it's no different really. Yeah. And just cross deck of those skills into the corporate world is um, set me up quite nicely, actually. What did you move on to doing from there? So I did another tour. I went around the Med and down to Saudi in Oman about 2011, 2012. That was the first big ship deployment that they'd done in, I think, 10, 15 years, something like that, because obviously Afghan and Iraq had taken precedence. And so they kind of left all of those peace building exercise or relationship building exercises to uh, sort of fallen by the wayside, really. Yeah, that was fantastic. You know, four, four and a half months on ship. Creatine was my diet. A good opportunity to get a good tan, to be in shape, meet with some really interesting foreign militaries. That was really, really fantastic to have that exposure to the multitude of different militaries around the world and, you know, actually identify the similarities between all of them. Everybody has different cultures. Yes, everybody has different languages, but fundamentally there's something about the culture of being in the military. It's it's quite quite fascinating. I'm sure you, you've had your own independent experience of these and many of the other guys have as well. The biggest thing I noticed was the difference between volunteer soldiers and conscripted soldiers. When you worked with uh, countries where they'd got conscripts, they were very different people to the people who'd put their hand up and said, I, I want to do this. And that was my, my biggest memory of foreign militaries. Yeah, I mean, I can't... I, and I how terrifying Czech special forces were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I would have struggled to say that I met I, uh, you know, I would have known the difference uh, between a conscript and a, and a regular only because I may never have met an actual conscript other than, than volunteers. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see that what's playing out around the world in terms of morale and enthusiasm you have for what you do. I can't imagine being a conscript 
into into an army is much fun if it goes completely against what you want to do and believe in so yeah i can imagine there's distinct differences so yeah working with volunteers primarily yeah it was really really interesting experience so yeah four and a half months on ship brilliant actually really enjoyed it didn't think i was going to enjoy it did and when we were in djibouti that was an interesting place and i think my first sort of exposure was going out into the town someone had obviously dropped trow and just was defecating on the streets and i was like okay i think i got the gauge of the place pretty quick and it subsequently transpired that you could buy leopards at the local market or some other type of big cat i'm not particularly great you know in that world i'm not a zoologist or anything but a couple of nights in because we were, i think we were docked there for three or four days one of the lads had uh, plucked up the courage to go and purchase one of these big cats and you know obviously intoxicated came back to the ship and tried to get the leopard slash big cat back on board uh, much to his disappointment obviously the guards at the ship did not allow this to take place and uh, he had to uh, return it to the market yeah it's all it's all stuff that you would never experience anywhere else around you know in any other job i don't think not condoning no. it obviously but it is pretty hilarious was it after then that you made the the push to go and do the officer training it was after my second tour actually i had a really really great tour you know did all sorts of things that i probably would never have done as a you know rifleman within the company you know i did tactical questioning which is superb i thoroughly enjoyed that trying to identify someone's motivators for wanting to do what they had or had not done and trying to piece together the truth that was a really fascinating part of my role and something again i, I look quite favorably upon i was getting on as well getting on 25 for the military getting on yeah old man right there yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> And I had kind of had two options. I, I was then at that point, I thought, well, I'll, I'd really like to go SF or I'd like to go for officers. And it just came down to a simple maths equation. If I give officers a go and don't pass, I can try SF later. But if I give up the opportunity of officers, I'll never be able to do it again past my 26th birthday. And so I just thought, well, just give it a go. I remember having to get a waiver because I was edging on the cusp uh, and they thought, actually, you know, let's let, let's let this guy through and give it a blast. I remember doing a potential officer's course again. I remember doing the AIB, you know, all of the things which was basically like, as I was going through it and kind of what I was talking about earlier and what you asked me, did I ever have doubt? I don't think I had doubt until the second week of actual training where I was getting beasted like I was a nod, uh, like I was somebody who had just joined training again. You know, I'd done five, six years, two tours and it was just like I was dirt on somebody's shoe again. And, I was, and that was really hard to go through as well, if I'm tr truly honest. Probably haven't admitted this to many people, but I do remember phoning up my wife and bawling and going, I don't know why I thought this was a good idea. This is terrible to be treated like this again after all of that. And, and I don't re and, and, and that kind of made me think, have I gone into this with the wrong, with the incorrect expectations? And it was all to do with expectation management. What did I think it was going to be like? Had I set myself up to really yeah. be treated as that, you know, upon reflection, no, I hadn't fully set myself up to be that dirt on the, on the shoe. Again, I thought there was some sort of not special treatment because that would, that would make me sound, uh, you know, somewhat privileged, I think. And, and I, I don't think it was as extreme as that, but almost just like, a, all right, fair enough. You, you've got Green Beret, you know, you've done some tours. We'll yeah. go easy maybe on some, some aspects. So was it on the course that you, you got injured? 
it was right towards the back end, probably the week pre uh, commando tests again. So it's kind of on that final exercise. Well, you'd have had just... to do the commando tests again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There were four, five other core commission. It was the most core commission that they had in that year ever. There's usually one, max two. And there was six core commission that went through that year. And they also had to do it again. And I knew that. And it was explained in detail, you know, before I went for this. And they also were really, really articulated the point around and probably amplified the point saying, if you get to a certain point and you get injured, you cannot return back to service. You do understand that, don't you? And I said, I won't get injured. You know, it's not in my plan. It's not, it's not what I'm going to, it's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in there, smash it and, and, and have a really successful career beyond that point. And I obviously got past the maximum point and thought, you know, this is just plain sailing for me. I should be able to smash this. And then of course I did get injured. And then the real worry starts to set, set in, you know, anxiety starts to go and go, is this injury it, or am I just going to work really, really hard to try and rehab this injury so I can rejoin the batch again? I would have had to rejoin another 10 weeks than I'd already got to, if that makes sense, had I wanted to join the next year. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's pretty heavy. That's quite a big ask to do that again. Bearing in mind, I'd just done sort of 25, no, 30 weeks at that point, another 30 weeks. And I was like, mm, that's that's quite a big ask. Anyway, I just went for it. And then my injury wasn't in a position to go to the next batch because I only had four or five months to really get it up to full rehab, you know, to fully operational. And so I then stayed again to go into the next one. But for whatever reason, that the CEO that came in said that anybody get that gets injured and they have longer than like three weeks off, they have to return right to back to the start of training again. And I kind of just thought, oh. I remember having, you know, really in-depth chats with the other OC and the medical advisors, doctors, and just saying, look, I've just been like, you know, game-changing injured here. This is, this is a game-changer. I could probably have squeezed out like another six months of, of training on this, but to go right back and ask me to do all that again, what do you think? And the rehab was going okay. It wasn't anywhere where it needed to be. I couldn't run yet and certainly couldn't carry weight. And as it got closer and closer and closer, they were, you know, of the opinion to redo another 64 weeks in training is probably going to give me uh, some sort of long lasting damage. And it certainly won't allow me to crack on in the military as what you need to be as a, as a fresh young officer being charged with the responsibility of potentially going to take a troop of Marines on active service. That just wasn't a reality for me. And so kind of wound down that after, after a couple of years, but in many ways, it wasn't too bad because I didn't really like to sort of stay still. And I did sort of four months at a different posting, five months at this posting, sort of six weeks, eight weeks here, 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 there and everywhere around different parts of the core. And that was actually some really good exposure for my last sort of two and a half years in the Marines was doing and being posted around those places of which I would never have had that opportunity had I've gone a typical route. So I saw things and met people and got involved in things which I would otherwise have probably never have done in that capacity as a junior officer because when you when you finish you are qualified as that in effect so then you've you, you've got to the point where you've had to agree that it's not going to work out mm -hmm. 
the injury is not going to allow you to get back through the course again. So did you have any idea what you were going to do? Beyond? No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. I thought I was going to stay in the military for 22. I thought that was me. I thought I was going to be in. And I wanted to make the most of it. Yeah. And yeah, I had no I, I I didn't even know what would be what I could go and do, to be honest with you, quite frankly. So I just started doing what everyone else said to do, which was project management, change management, become a project manager or a consultant. I was like, oh, yeah, fine. This is this is the path, the well trodden path. Let's let's go do these things. And so I trained in change, in risk, in project management, in APMP, ticked all those boxes, spent lots of LCAS getting those uh, courses done. Very good for the LCAS receivers. Uh, to be fair, the, the training was really good. It was of high quality. And I just kind of went a bit blindly into it, if I'm really honest. Did you feel like the Marines looked after you well from the point where it was clear that you weren't going to continue? Was the resettlement process good? I don't know if you experienced this at all, but it's once you're on that way out, it's no longer really a, a Marine's or the Marines' responsibility. It's kind of like an armed forces problem. I become an armed forces problem or what will soon to be a veteran problem. And going through that typical route of, of CTP, Careers Transition Partnership, which of course I don't want to bring into any type of questioning on, on this forum, but fundamentally, I do believe that there is more that could be offered to people transitioning, even still today from what I hear. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I've got involved with Bootnecks Into Business, which is a sort of CIC. We can talk about that another time, but it was really not clear what to do, where to go. I think I remember getting job adverts for becoming a forklift driver. Your skills match this. Yeah. And, not, you know, if you've got your heart set being on a forklift driver, amazing. I didn't. And I really felt that there were not very many jobs that I wanted to go and do. That You know, I think I got cleaning at the local office. Again, I didn't have my heart set on that. That's not what I wanted for myself. And so I think I really struggled with that process. And I was unemployed for seven months after leaving the military. I had no job. I had no prospects. And... I hadn't really been taught at that time a route to here, go do this activity because this activity is going to actually bring you something in return. That activity and you know, what I'm talking about here is networking. You know, that networking activity is yeah. by far the most important thing uh, still today. Um, I, mean, I mean, you know, you would undoubtedly have gone through a similar path, I, I should imagine. There was a lot more blagging. At the start of my, uh, my, my civilian <laughs> career. <laughs> I think I can say that now. I don't work for any of those people anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, I sold myself well. But yeah, it was uh, when I was leaving, there was similar stuff. Like what was suggested to me as like potential future careers, I, nothing that was suggested to me through any official channels, like, interested me so i decided i'd make my own way bought some books sat some exams did some world-class blagging got my way into a, a career in tech and it, it sort of has gone all right from there and uh, i don't think i learned the networking lesson early enough if i could go back to just leaving the army that would probably be the big thing that i would push first is like there are amazing people out there who 
will freely give you their time and opinion and guidance as long as you're you know a decent person you know you meet the likes of uh of ben leg incredible guy and happily shares his time with uh with other veterans and helps people and if you're leaving start building a network also what's what's really important is is understanding your own value knowing your value not over inflating your value but knowing your value i think is super important and knowing your values and how they translate into something of value within the workplace is, is so so crucially important as i was leaving I, I knew i was in trouble i had my second child on the way and i just remember thinking i used to be the breadwinner and now i'm nothing i felt like i was nothing and I've now got an entire family to support and I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to go to and I don't know who I need to go to for help. So I remember contacting pretty much all of the charities. And the one that really, really stood out for me was Safa. And they assigned me a mentor. And this chap was called Alex. And he massive, Alex McLeod, he really, really helped me understand my value within the workplace. The you know, referred to then civilian world, but the real world, let's be honest. And I would say that networking is one aspect, but also if you can find, and you just mentioned it there, a mentor, a few sessions with a mentor can really be all you need in order to set yourself up for success. I think realistically, not just lead a better life, but like understand where you can go, where you could be and what skills you've learned have put you into a very, very small percentage of the population and those skills turned into something can be of incredible value to not only yourself, but those around you and adding value back into the economy, which is what is so desperately needed now. Entrepreneurs bringing other business into the economy, which is so fundamentally needed. Not trying to always link it back to a financial return or a financial benefit. But the reality is, is that you do have a great skill set for being one of those few that do succeed as a successful entrepreneur as well. So so you've then worked with a mentor and you've done a bit of the uh, enhanced learning. So then um, did you did you go and get an employed job or did you just start straight off self-employed? No, I actually I actually had a chat with a chap called Rod Yap. So he's, he's a former Marine officer. And he said, mate, no, you want to go and do this stuff, but go and cut your teeth. That wasn't the expression that he used. I can't remember the expression he used, but he said, in effect, go cut your teeth in a corporate job. He said 12, 18, 24 months, and then go from there. And so I, I said, that, that seems like sound advice. I'll go and do that. And uh, I managed to get a job as a management consultant for Capita, which is fantastic. And the team I went into was really quality team. You know, they're really focused on it. Obviously, far more years of experience than me. But I've kind of found myself in that sort of PMO, uh, project management office role as reporting. And to be honest with you, that the chap who was running the team, Andrew, was kind of like, you seem like a awesome bloke, but I don't really know where to put you. So I'm going to put you on reporting. You'll probably be good at that. And I was fine. It was good. It was good experience. But I just always was looking for other activities that I could get involved in because I didn't I didn't necessarily have a very, very specific job role, but you don't as a consultant, do you? I mean, you just try and find different things to add value uh, where you can add value. And that was really what I did. So I went to cut my teeth in management consultancy, then moved to what was then a kind of boutique consultancy, but is now a very, very successful consultancy in Bristol. And they were awesome. Had I not gone and done my own thing, I probably would have stayed with that consultancy for as long as I could have done, because I think the leaders there were 
were brilliant. Graham and Dean, really, really top blokes. So management consultancy was my path post the military, gained some other additional skills, did networking all the time I was there. I was like, right, let's increase the black book. I know the secret thing to do now. Let's go do that. And just everywhere I go now, it's just networking, networking, networking. Yeah, carried that forward and started my own business with Ben. How did you meet Ben? Everybody thinks that we were in the Marines together. And when I say to them or Ben says to them, it's like, no, 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 we actually met on LinkedIn. They're like, what? Really? How did you go on and build this thing? And the kind of answer is always the same. When we both started, he had just come off the bat of working with the England football team down at Limpston. And I'd started my little coaching business. He had started his little coaching business. You know, interesting coaching names. His was Williams Elite. Mine was the Motivation Mogul. Thank you. And we <laughs> we got on the call and we probably between us shared a client uh, or two. And, you know, that call was after we met on LinkedIn, you know, it took him four months to respond, but I don't remind him that frequently. And we got on a call, which was supposed to be 15 minutes of, hey, you know, you're right. Like, what are you up to? Really just checking each other out, scoping each other out, going, are you doing better than me? Do I need to up my game? That kind of thing. And we both openly yeah. admit that. But two and a half hours later, three hours later, we were still in the car. I, mean, I was in my car. He was in his car. And we were like, oh, imagine if we could do everything we want to do, but we just do it together. Imagine the impact we could have. Imagine the, the value we could bring if we do, you know, multiply, uh, you know, force force multiply. Just do it and just crack it. Here's the thing. We share, we share the same values or similar values. We want to go after the same things and we've got a clear vision of where we want to go. Let's just do it together. And I think... After that two, hour, two and a half hours, three hours, we just got very busy. You know, I was still doing the consultancy job there, but in the evening we were having, you know, calls from like eight o'clock till 10 o'clock, half past 10 at night. I've still got the original PowerPoints and it's like a Williams and Thompson agenda for today. Da -da 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 -da. And it was just, you know, trying to over-professionalize it for the band of two. Ben did his little artistic thing, wrote out the brand, which we then worked towards. Interesting brand, obviously. We called it Vanguard Global Solutions. And, and how we arrived at that name was, I, you know, I looked in a little bit in Greek mythology and realized that, you know, Vanguard and Vanguard obviously was applicable to that of Genforce, uh, you know, wargaming. You know, Vanguard was the first unit in the most disruptive and uh, the, basically the ones that got the job initially done. So we're like, yeah, we need to be called Vanguard because that's what we're going to do. We're going to be the first in and you know, disrupt with the disruptors. So Vanguard seemed a suitable name. And then we were like, hmm, well, we don't just want to be in the UK. We don't just want to be in Europe. So let's be global. Let's do it global. Right. Vanguard Global. Okay. What's the next one? Let's know. Uh, well, what is it that we do? Well, we do solutions. So solutions, Vanguard Global Solutions. And that's how VGS was born, literally from that. <laughs> Fair enough. It, it's, it's a reasonable approach to naming an organization. Everybody thought we were a security firm, which is brilliant. Do you do security? You know, how are the security contracts? Obviously, you've moved from being the Marines into security, the classic route. We're like, no, 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 no. We're, you know, we're, we're mindset coaches. That's what we do. Here's our brand. <laughs> that was brilliant. So then how, brilliant. how did that go? When you, you guys had teamed up, you'd creatively named yourself like a security company. Uh, and uh, how, how did it go, like, taking that journey with someone else? It was good. It was a lot of additional work, lots of hours put in, and not to, in for the slightest moment, 
promoting this this hustle culture it's just what is required of when you start a bit i think you know i don't really see how you get away with not doing lots of hours personal opinion uh, just reality but we yeah put lots of additional hours in lots of weekends lots of what are we going to be what are we trying to sell the creation of our own courses i found an original proposal for services the other day to a big customer that we'd probably just got to the second conversation with. And obviously there was already a full proposal with costings and weekly agendas. And, you know, I would build them. I think, I think the proposed bill was 1.2 million or some, some ludicrous sum for literally nothing more than sort of two blokes rocking up talking about mindset in a business. Anyway, you go through all of these phases of business, don't you? Naively. It sounds like I'm an absolute amateur. I probably was. I'm a little bit more professional now, which is good. But you try and test, you know, try and test, try and test, try and test. Keep Just keep trying and testing. And we kept trying and testing. And I got this opportunity, interestingly enough, from Heropreneurs to go and attend one of their Dragon's Den days up at HSBC in Centenary Square in Birmingham. And I didn't really know what to expect at all. There was me trying to promote a mindset and performance consultancy. And obviously we looked like a security company. So that was one of the comments we got back immediately. What they had done is they had basically invited some senior people within HSBC Bank, like really quite senior people with business banking and to partake in this day. And they had selected some of their most uh, senior account holders. I think that's what they referred them to as, or, or businesses, SMEs, you know, senior SMEs in the county or in the district, whatever you'd like to refer to. And they all sat around this table. So it was quite come and pitch us your business. I didn't really know if I'm truly honest what I was actually pitching. I was just I'd get there more for an opinion. I was like, I got, I'm doing this. What do you reckon? And obviously I think I was supposed to be, you know, asking for money or something like that. But we just went in there and said what we were doing. And from that, crazily, we managed to secure like a huge, huge engage program with HSBC off the back of that. We met in that same room, someone who's now our investor for our later business. And it couldn't have gone that badly in that moment in time because two really promising things came from it. But no, it was after that point, you know, we worked really hard. We probably had 14 different meetings before we actually secured the contract with HSBC. And each one, it was a bit like, oh, this is getting more serious. It's getting more serious. It's getting more, getting more serious. Then we did the pilots. And of course, they wanted to, to road test us to make sure that we were of quality. And we did exactly what we said on the tin because we kind of overpromise. But that's fine. You do that at the time. And then we kind of like the idea of over deliver as well. And we over delivered and we managed to get some of the highest evaluation scores on their surveys that the banks ever had in their pilots of these types of workshops. And that isn't a like a that that's not bragging rights, hashtag bragging rights. That's just a point to say that we really were quite serious about what we were doing. And that was enough yeah. to secure us then a, a really big deal where we helped and supported three and a half thousand people of HSBC to go through the program. And that would kind of really put us on the right path for our original business, which was the coaching and consulting. And then of course, just as we were hitting terminal velocity, COVID put an immediate blocker on what we were doing. So we were working with VW, Meta and all these great companies. And it just immediately stopped because of COVID. And we all had to move to online and no one really, it just took the wind out of the sails at that moment in time. And it was just a really sort of crushing thing to experience. Yeah. Like so many other businesses i'm not trying to say that i'm or we are yeah. at all special but this happened to a lot of people and that's when we kind yeah. of moved on to the next business 
Who suggested the new business, you or Ben? We'd always spoken about tech even before this happened. I think one of our first conceptual ideas was to create a community app because we had this other brand as well. We started, I forgot about this. We started a clothing brand as well called Brave Edge for those who dare, obviously. And uh, it was, you know, we sold quite a few t-shirts, you know, we did sell quite a few t-shirts, a couple of hoodies there, here, there and everywhere. I think some shorts as well. You know, we still got the rights to it. So we'll probably do something with it at a later stage. Within this Brave Edge, we started this community page And within about, I don't know, three months, we probably had over 1,500, 2,000 people who were interested in what we were doing, this community. And the the whole premise of the community was to give back to your community, look after your own community. Silly little things like getting rewarded for picking up litter in your community and ensuring that everybody's sort of just playing the game, you know, bringing that sort of real camp ethos into the community. If your community looks after yourself, then everybody has a much better experience. And that's kind of what we're doing with Brave Edge. And then we thought, well, maybe we could make that into an app. We could reward people with points and cash back at their local restaurants and and cafes to put everything back, like reinvesting back into the community. We had a six to nine month hiatus of that idea until COVID because we got really busy with the other stuff, the coaching consulting work. And then we got, we we presented with that opportunity and Ben was quite a lot on the delivering, you know, he he really did deliver uh, the majority on the HSBC stuff. And so we saw an opportunity to start that business in technology and we knew nothing. Naively went bold as brass into technology and just started creating and just thought, well, here's some conceptual ideas. Let's create this. And one of the ideas was, I think our first business idea was the Thought app. And so the idea of what we noticed in businesses that we're working with was that the actual rich information that all of these people held amongst them was never reaching it to the point of where somebody could do something about it. It was always getting watered down or fettered out or whatever it might have happened to it, but it needed to reach the decision makers. And this information was never getting pushed in the right direction. So it's all about forward mobilization of data. And they were using engagement surveys to get lagging indicators. And we were kind of like, there's got to be a data enrichment program here. There's got to be a way to get better quality data to those decision makers. Well, we don't know how to do that. So we'll just try and conceptualize these ideas. And I think one of the first ideas that we had was like this bubble up uh, that would like raise the bubble all the way in the bubble, when the bubble got to the top, it would burst. And that would be like the number one idea that was the number one sentiment that was happening within the company. And we were kind of like, yeah, that's got to be the thing that we go after here. And then we've got some professionals basically saying, that's ridiculous and it's not possible. You need like a full dev team to do that. And we were like, okay, so what can we start with? And we just started with a check-in. We were like, okay, well, that was pretty important because in 2019, Ben and I sort of between us had, had four friends that committed suicide. And we thought, well, you know, obviously that's really not great and quite a sad time, but I think it also made us quite curious as to what could be done about that. How do you combat that? What would you need to do in order to try and have a net positive impact on that? Where do you start? Well, if we could maybe check in, you know, just check in with the mates regularly enough, just make sure that everything's okay. And that was kind of where this whole check-in idea, it made sense for being able to check in for the sentiment to enrich the data, but it also made sense to do it from a, you know, well-being perspective, I suppose. And we got some initial quotes from some people outside of our organization. Our organization makes it sound massive, outside the three of us. Then we just started recruiting for a product manager, someone in dev who knew what they were doing, 
developer because we felt that what we were going to create it always needed to remain in-house. It didn't need to be shipped out per se. And nothing wrong with that at all, but we just felt that the sensitivity of the work that we were doing, we wanted to keep it in-house. And we just started the business. Then we just added some more people, really good quality people. Surround yourself with excellence always. Just get on with it really and just go, well, well, that's one cross. Cross that off, right? Okay, let's go to the next one. Don't really know where we're going here, but this feels like we're going in the right direction. Here's the rough business plan. Here's the business presentation. And yeah, we kind of bootstrapped it for nine months and then we got some investment. So did you go out to your network for investment? Yeah, turns out our network didn't have any investors in it. So that was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, we did. And then we, then, we, then we started just searching all the angel networks that we possibly could. Started to speak to as many people trying to bring the awareness to this idea that we had had and which was now gaining momentum. We got to an MVP stage. There's a bit more to the story. So let me let me give you some context around it because it does require the context of how we arrived at this point. This was probably October 2020. And at this point, at the end of October, we had spoken to maybe 20, 30 different investors and they'd all just said, this will never work. Good luck. We even got on a second call with an investor, potential investor, where we thought it might be going somewhere. But the second call was basically just to tell us how much they disliked the military. And what we were doing was ridiculous, trying to connect military with humans. You know, what do you know about, you know, having an effect for people? What do you know about this? All you do is kill them. We were like, uh, okay, thanks, bye. Whilst also feeling, you know, in incredibly enraged, but not really knowing what to say or what was okay to say. I just, you know, completely taken aback. And I remember saying to Ben and Ben saying to me, like, we need to get the team in a room because actually we've only got six weeks, sorry, eight weeks of runway. The dream dies in eight weeks if we don't get investment, like it's over. And at this point we had seven people. And so we all brought them in the room. We had this little shack in, in Western Supermare and, you know, it was referred to as a shack days or the shack. And we refer to it as the shack days. Great days. No internet. Trying to create a tech company with no internet is fucking difficult. Obviously tech company. Yeah. Why would you need that? Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, we had all our phones like pitched up on the window, just trying to, you know, switch between whoever had the strongest mobile reception. And so anyway, we brought the team into this shack, which was next to a dump. It was in an industrial estate and I think it had some very loud graphics like machines downstairs. So when it was hot, it was bloody boiling because there was no windows or like one window where there was air coming in. And when it was hot, the dust was coming in because it was just the nature of the beast where we were. And when it was cold, it was freaking cold because it was all like metal uh, above our head. So we put the team through their paces in the early days. We really did. Anyway, we called them up and we'd set, got them in the room. We're like, team, we've got eight weeks left. Don't know if we're going to raise money. This is the reality. We do not mind if you at this stage want to walk out the door and go and try and find something else. But we needed to let you know. They kind of all looked at each other. They're like, nah, we don't want to leave. You'll figure it out. Let's get back to work. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Uh, let's go and get busy then. And from that point, you know, after telling the team, then Jack went home and spoke to his dad and said, look, dad, never been in this situation before done university and this is what's happening and uh, they need to find investment so his dad says oh actually i think i know somebody through through my network and he was a panel beater and he said oh i think i know chris who knows dave and dave's working at this chap's house who's who's just done really well from a business i'll ask him and dave the chippy came back and said yeah i think paul's probably interested in, in this like through the lines of communication got back to jack and 
Jack answered the phone and Paul phoned him and Jack was like, hello. And then we got onto the, the actual Zoom call with Paul there. Jack was sat next to us, briefed it as we had done, you know, 50 times probably beforehand, all to nothing, no avail. And done the presentation. At the end of it, Paul sat back in his chair. And I was like, whatever's happening, please tell me if this is a goer or, or not a goer. And Paul was of the opinion, he said, would I invest in this? And it felt like ages. It felt like absolutely ages till the next thing that he said. It was reality. It was probably five seconds, but it felt like five minutes. And he said, yes, yes, I would invest in this. And me and Jack under the table, like, yes, like, you know, straight faces, but just like gripped each other's hands. Like, yes, <laughs> we found it. And that's kind of really after that point when Lupin started to gain momentum. That's when it really started to move up to the next level when we got investment and we really started putting meat on the bones, January 2021. Do you want to share what Lupin is now and where it's going? Lupin fundamentally is, it's evolved over time. Uh, the premise is still, you know, looking out for one another. But by doing this, we are now at a point because we've included AI into our platform. We're now able to identify where there's a higher propensity for burnout. And there's a high propensity for attrition within teams. And equally, through the way in which the platform is built, it's encouraging that openness between teams, which by virtue increases team resilience and team understanding and awareness. We are having a net positive effects on not only the actual team dynamics and you know increasing performance, but we're also able to identify and save on the bottom line by people not having to go on long-term sick because they're burnt out because we spot that early enough or where there's a people heading towards wanting to leave we can spot that early enough and we just had a really big company which i will be able to mention in the not too distant future just sign up for 12 months because of when they had a pilot of, of sort of 60 days they were able to prevent two people from leaving and two people from burning out and they said that they've never had a technology like this so this for us is is why we want to take it forward for the next 12 months at least Who's it aimed at? What sort of companies is it aimed at? It's really difficult to, to be precise on this. Fundamentally, it's, it's bigger organizations. You know, 100 plus is kind of the ICP, really. Enterprises are great, but 100 to, to 350 companies are kind of like our, our sweet spot, if you like. But I got asked this the other day. They said, what, what sectors do you, do you find yourself in? And I said, well, realistically, every sector has people in it. So it's relatively sector agnostic, albeit where we're working really, really well is within sales teams, within marketing teams, and within tech teams. And we're doing really, really well in those particular areas of business. When you were sat there with eight weeks of runway left, and mm. you're thinking, I want to make this work, but I don't know if it's going to. Do you think your experiences back in the military helped you keep pushing? I think so. I'd say so with pretty, pretty big degree of confidence. It would have been pretty easy to wrap at that point and go, this isn't happening, guys. We need to go and find something else and switch focus to going and trying and finding a new income or a new route or go back to the coaching or. Yeah, I always have a saying, though, whatever comes easy in life is valued less or not worth having, which is not entirely true, yeah. of course. But in many instances, it is. And so also being a glutton for punishment, clearly, I've latterly found out that, you know, something probably wrong with me but we'll unpick that at a later stage but i think that resilience piece is by its very definition the thing which kept us all going you know the team had resilience the team wanted this to succeed and i think that that was through a mix of openness within the team you know the truth 
us showing vulnerability, yeah. us having a very, very clear yeah. path of where we want to go, clear, very clear target. You know, it's kind of like you need a target so you can pull the bow back. You know, it's kind of like the intention. Where are we going? Where's the intention being applied here? I know that's also tension and intention, but I do in this count mean intention. But you need somewhere to point the target. And I think having that target is really, really clear. And that can really buy people into why to stay at the company. Definitely between Ben and I, we managed to encourage the team through our own experiences and that of what we experienced before. Something I've uh, I've been asking everyone is, uh, and I already think I know what you're going to answer to this, but <laughs> we'll see. Uh, if you were to give a piece of advice to someone who was coming up to their last year in the armed forces, what would that bit of advice be? It's really difficult now because I think it's slightly changed. Obviously, the natural answer is networking. Never have too many coffees is what I'm trying to say. Never have too many coffees. Go to places you wouldn't normally go to. Buy someone else a coffee who you don't know or you think is someone worth speaking to in an organisation, you know, where you want to go. Or even if you don't, rule it out. So networking is one of them. I think probably the most important thing to do, and this is a piece of advice which I staunchly sit behind all the time, is figure out what you don't want to do. Because then it narrows the lanes. It narrows the opportunity for you to then go, actually, I've got these three, four things which definitely, definitely, hey, I don't know if I want to do them, but like at least I, you know, I've, I've discounted all the other things I don't want to do. I think if I would have heard that piece of advice, that would have really, really helped me how you do it is then go through that process of, you know, what do I stand for? What are my values? Yes, I was given excellence, integrity, self-discipline, humility, courage, determination, unselfishness and cheerfulness in the face of adversity from the Marines as my values. But equally, I have values as a father. I have values as a husband. I have values as a business partner, now business partner. And they all require a different value set. And I think you are going through and transitioning now. What do I not want to do? is really, really important. And then thirdly, just be mindful of the noise as well. Because I think I've seen a few things over the last like couple of years where I think there might be wrong advice that's being given, which isn't helpful, especially if you go into business conversation and you think that you can walk into a job that's 300,000 and they say, are you kidding? We only pay 50, 60. And you go, well, this job clearly isn't for me. And that's an actual thing that has happened, which I've heard about, which is, you know, way off the mark. Get weighted advice. Don't just take it up front. Cross-reference your information and make sure that that is actually true. Build a network that you can then check advice amongst. Yeah, yeah all of those things come from the network, definitely. Anthony, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for giving me your time. No, honestly, Nick, absolute pleasure. Been really great. Thank you very much for your time and uh, to everyone that's uh, given up an hour uh, of their time listening to my dulcet tones and, and your brilliant questioning. Thanks for listening. I'm sure you'll agree the stories from the guests on the show are incredible. Starting your own company is a brave and difficult thing to do. There's a theme of resilience running through all these stories, which is key to success as an entrepreneur. If you're a veteran with a good story to tell, we'd love to have you on. If you're leaving the military and you want to get in touch, email podcast at littlebigtech.co.uk. If you run a business and you're looking for an IT company that's entrepreneurial and forward thinking, please do get in touch. I hope you enjoy the rest of the series.